0: Hello and welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we bring you insights from media industry experts to help journalists do their jobs better. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Today, we will be talking about how your newsroom can run a community listing strategy. Our guest is Loretta Chow, Vice President of Strategy and Startups at the American Journalism Project, a non-profit organisation working to support local, independent journalism. Loretta has just wrapped up a massive listening project that saw 5,000 people respond to a survey on what they really want from local news. The top line is that readers crave a fuller picture of trustworthy stories on topics that provide immediate action and agency. We'll hear some tips on how to deliver on exactly that, but what if you want to find out what your local community wants? also got some innovative ideas in store on how to encourage readers to provide constructive feedback and be part of the practical solution. All that's coming up, so don't go anywhere. Loretta, welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. Thank you ever so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Loretta I understand that uh, your first professional job was an interesting one as a mobile phone salesperson um, tell us more about this
1: so when I was uh, you know in college I had to work multiple jobs but my longest lasting one was selling cell phones out of a kiosk in Port Authority bus terminal in New York uh, so it wasn't just selling cell phones it was you know in the middle of a lot of chaotic situations
0: Hustle and bustle right yeah prime location
1: exactly <laughs> and it was at a time that a lot of people were buying their very first cell phone so it was really fun to kind of bring that joy into people's lives so
0: was it like the classic flip phones
1: yes actually what was hot when i was selling them was the razor that dates me um <laughs> people were still using sidekicks i think
0: uh not like the nokia brick phones no
1: we still had some of those because they were less uh, expensive and people still bought them but the big one was the smaller version of the brick. Um, and you know, back then battery life was like people's biggest concern with cell phones. The time port came out for those of you who, who care about this stuff. Um, yeah.
0: So. I, I don't think those brick phones ever did run out of charge. I'm, I'm convinced of that to this day, but um, <laughs> I imagine that job taught you a lot about talking to people, interpersonal skills, uh, interacting with the public.
1: Yes, it was. I would say sales is great because it's like a very customer service type of job, which I think heavily relates into what I did as a reporter. Because uh, I was a reporter for for a long time, so it was it was super fun. I got to meet all different kinds of people. Um, you know, explain how cell phones and contracts worked and things like that. So,
0: the biggest life lesson that you took from that position, what would it be?
1: That you can. Find something interesting about with just about anyone you speak to. If you talk to them long enough and you have an open mind.
0: Yeah. Do you do you have like a go to icebreaker or objection handle question or anything like that?
1: I think that leading with empathy is just what it is. It's like you kind of learn how to read people. You see if they're having a good day or a bad one.
0: When you demonstrate
1: to people that you're listening, yeah, they respond well to that, and 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 it works out really well. So you know, in reporting, that also served me well.
0: Super. And you, and you went on to cover tech news, right?
1: I did. I was at the Wall Street Journal for 12 years, uh, part of which I spent overseas and wrote about tech in Asia. Um, but then, you know, tech now permeates everything that we do. So
0: sure, carried over. And tell us what you do now then at AJP.
1: I'm VP of Strategy and Startups, which I know is a weird sort of hard to understand title. Um, AJP is itself a startup. So we have evolved quite a bit over the last few years since I joined Um, And I oversee a team that helps to um, incubate new news organizations that are created out of a community listening process that I know we're going to talk about, Mm -hmm. um, where we assess sort of like the information gaps in a given market and try to figure out what the best solution is for it. If that solution is uh, is a new startup, then our team can come in and help hire the founding team you know, draw from the things that we've learned from across AJP's portfolio to help, you know, uh, overcome the hurdles that all organizations have
0: when they're first starting out. Set them up for success, I guess you could say.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that startup life is hard. It's even harder in an industry that is uh, struggling as the news industry is. But um, it's it's a super fun job.
0: There's a bit of a catch-22 coming up. We need more input on what we can do differently to satisfy our readers. But between dwindling trust towards the media and growing news avoidance, why would people fill out a survey for us? The AJP opted for a community listening strategy that in the end brought in 5,000 responses across the US and nine key themes emerged. To sum it all up, people want actual local news, trustworthy facts, full of stories about communities, accountability reporting, better representation of themselves, Their questions answered, actionable information, accessible news, and greater community connection. It's a good list, but not all communities want the same thing. What about your community? What do you think they want? If you want to know how to encourage more responses, Loretta provides three replicable strategies for newsrooms of any size.
1: One thing we wanted to make sure was that we were reaching people who fall outside of the typical networks that are reached.
0: Right. And mm-hmm. of
1: course it's easy to read a bunch of articles and say, Oh, this guy has been quoted in a bunch of articles. Let's talk to him because often the same people are at the table. So we have a multi-pronged approach. Uh, one of those is to hire a team of community ambassadors. These are um, not necessarily the people you might find if you're trying to look around and just find community leaders, but talking to community leaders and getting references from them as far as who are people that have social networks that are more deeply ingrained in, in communities that are um, maybe don't speak English, uh, you know, as the first language, or people who are, um, you know, often just too busy to show up to, to meetings and things like that. Um, and then leveraging that team to reach you know more people that you wouldn't otherwise reach and also in a way that makes them more trusting of the person who's reaching out to them. And then in addition to that, we also do interviews and focus groups around ter- certain topics. I think sometimes topics will bring people to a table because it's something they're passionate about. Um and then lastly, our sort of last line of uh, of defense is, is text messaging because that is the most random sampling you can get. So although we are not like statistically, you know, we're not we're not talking to people exactly in the breakdown of the demographics of the region we're in. We are making sure we're hearing from people even who are the types to be reluctant to respond to, you know, calls out for interviews and surveys and things
0: like that. Right. Super. That, that's very interesting. Let me just touch on a few of those uh, to start with. I, I love the idea of the community ambassadors as like these networks that you can dip into and they're obviously well-connected and well-respected and well-trusted. Um, where do you start looking for these people what are the telltale signs that they can be useful and how do you bring them on board
1: we basically create a job description it's not like a really detailed one it's more just explaining what it is and some of the qualifications um when we are looking for people who are bilingual we do ask that they're able to um write and speak in english so that we can communicate with them and get information from them um and basically creating this job description in a flyer format or any format that is most likely to get seen and sharing it out with as many people as possible, spreading the word, asking um, community leaders, you know, whether it's local organizers, churches, mm-hmm. schools, um, just getting the word out anywhere you can. And uh, given today's gig economy, there's actually lots of people who are interested in this kind of work. It pays hourly. That's another thing I forgot to mention. We do compensate them. Um, and people tend to get interested too because it is a way to meet other people that are similarly community minded as they are. So the kinds of people who show up for this are often, um, you know, people who are involved in their neighborhoods, but, you know, not politically affiliated or anything like that, but just concerned citizens, I guess you could say. Um, And they love the opportunity to meet other people just like them.
0: Yeah. It sounds like a job, like a a job vacancy almost. And, And, I suppose maybe you can just advertise it as, you know, inform the work we're doing or be part of the team or be part of our listening strategy or something along those lines. Um, but yeah, that's a that's a great idea that uh, I'm sure our listeners may not have thought of previously. So thank you for that one.
1: The beautiful thing about it too is, and this is the reason why I think newsrooms can do this. When you start hiring people to be part of these community listening teams, those are like your super readers or your, your audience, right? Those are the people who, you probably want to reach as one of your priority sort of um, target audiences, and doing this is just a first step in a very long relationship you can have that's ever
0: evolving. The the one part of this I really do like is you're kind of opening the the newsroom funnel in a way that you wouldn't normally hire a a church leader to do your work for you and so often journalism can be seen as like a closed shop and we're only hiring people from certain backgrounds or certain qualifications but this kind of gives you a reason to expand your remit and look for more diverse people to inform the work you're doing.
1: Yeah and what's really exciting is when you do it you'll find people who may not have thought about journalism day in and day out get very interested because people are very concerned with the lack of information that they're looking for and the sort of proliferation of misinformation and polarization and all of these things are are close to their daily lives and being having exposure to this sort of like makes them even more interested in what your newsroom is doing.
0: Super so nine themes kind of emerged from the uh, community listening project that you conducted this year what I interpret from it or what I kind of read through those themes is essentially people want more effort, more care, more understanding from their local news providers. Um, Is that about fair?
1: Yes, and representation.
0: What else would you glean from it? Is there anything else that really stuck uh, with you?
1: I think that a big question we have going in is always, do people even really want local news? Um, And overwhelmingly, what we found is that the answer is yes. It's just a matter of how you deliver it and what exactly you're covering. Mm -hmm. So even though there are, of course, still local journalists who remain and are doing really hard work and honestly punching above their weight as far as like having much fewer resources and doing a lot with those resources. Mm -hmm. um, People want to see more, but they're not getting it. So I think that there's like this proliferation of content in general, but there's a difference between like the content they're consuming and verified information that they can trust um so the desire is very encouraging yeah and i think um what what but it begs the question for newsrooms of like how do you deliver it in a way that's most relevant to people how do you identify topics that that people actually want to read about or or hear about um and then what platform should you be delivering it on and can you sustain yeah the delivery on those platforms
0: i definitely think that's one thing that came through to me in that one uniform engagement strategy is not likely to work here you kind of need to cater or bend your strategy in a way that that um plays into what people truly want from their communities. Is that about right?
1: Yes. And what you you know, what non-journalists feel very agnostic about that you know is is how you deliver information to them. They're just going to go where it's interesting, or and and in the format that's digestible. Um, and I think they don't have the sort of uh, like they're not beholden to the traditions that I think journalists are sometimes beholden to as and we think oh wouldn't it, wouldn't it be such a travesty if people weren't getting information from reading the newspaper or like consuming five thousand word articles and, and things like that um but the truth is like yes like that's not how many people prefer to consume information it's not because they're uninterested sure so how do you do your reporting justice and deliver it and package it in a way um that reaches the maximum amount of people
0: give me some of the creative possibilities here that maybe our audience had not thought of previously?
1: Sure. So even within AJP's portfolio, we invest in 37 news organizations. Some of them are doing really innovative things. So there's uh, an outlet called Outlier in Detroit that has two-way texting relationships with their audience. So they got started responding directly to um, questions and requests from people they were trying to serve um, and helping people solve problems on the spot because their theory is like, great, of course, people need accountability journalism and need to know what policies are going to affect them. But also in the moment that they're getting evicted from their homes or dealing with some type of public health crisis, they obviously need information that's actionable right then and there. Mm -hmm. So having that texting relationship is is a really sort of unique aspect of what they do, um, and and very powerful. There's another uh, organization in New York called Documented, which uh communicates and sends news out with their audiences through whatsapp because spanish speaking audiences in the us uh, prefer that platform
0: cool and and without engaging in um some of these strategies you might not know that right so that's um certainly a, a reason to experiment when when i gave my summary one of the things you you refined as you said um local news providers need to provide better representation of their communities be that of of themselves you know the people of the community or the concerns, questions they have to um, like community leaders or, you know, their representatives. What's one possible change that newsrooms can adopt to fix this?
1: I think having a listening program like the one we were talking about earlier um, is one really powerful way to always have community input in everything you do. There is a new organization that we support called Signal in Ohio, where um, mm-hmm. we they not only have community listening team that is made up of residents who are working part-time doing office hours in um, a neighborhood for them. But they also have a documenters program, which they have 700 people signed up for. They train and pay them to help cover public meetings. And the powerful thing about that is they're not just encouraging people and giving people the tools to go to public meetings and report back out on them, but they also get so many story ideas from the questions that residents are asking because they basically have a line into what hundreds of people are wondering about the government right. each and every day. So um, that, that, that's a great thing that drives their newsroom too.
0: So it's like a drip feed that's constantly coming into the newsroom and they know constantly what people want to know about.
1: Yeah. And uh, they have the luxury of being a new startup so they could design their processes around, you know, an always-on listening process. But I do think that if you integrate constant listening into your news gathering... Um, but also like just spend physical you know, time physically in communities. I think that goes a long way. Um, the office hours they do are really powerful. So like multiple times a week, the same person will be at the same place in a public library. So, you know, in the beginning, nobody showed up, but now people in that neighborhood are accustomed to seeing that team there. They know that they're from Signal. They know that they're there to serve them. And it's just trust that's built over time.
0: Um, yeah you said something really interesting there and a little bit revealing in that, you know, they're a startup and that might be one of the advantages maybe of being a startup is you don't have these traditional notions that you kind of cling to you. in in some sense, you can rip up the rule book and, and be a bit unafraid to try something a bit unorthodox and something a bit different. You know, whereas if you've been going for a long time and you've got a set way of doing things, it can be harder to overcome that internal resistance. Um So, I just wonder if th- these are these are great ideas, but maybe the the problem is a bit more subtle in terms of overcoming internal resistance to some of these ideas. Any tips on how to do that?
1: I think that a lot of newsrooms recognize the need for more community engagement, but the way that some of the older ones have done it is like, of course, as you said, they're strapped for capacity. You know, they've got tons of things going on. It's really hard to change culture. Um, and I think that it's even harder when you do it as a sort of add on where you hire a community engagement team and you sort of let them do their thing, but you don't fully integrate it into your daily operations. Because what you'll find is that team is listening, but newsroom is not responding to what they're hearing. You can just as quickly lose trust um, or you can lose it more quickly than you can build it. So I think that it really has to come from leadership. Um, you know, the people who are guiding the newsroom and the, the strategy of the newsroom have to be fully bought in on the concepts of it and sort of shape workflows to build it directly into the reporting process. And I, I think that's the best way of, of making it successful.
0: Let's summarize what we've discussed so far. You can encourage responses through community ambassadors, inviting people to specific table discussions and through tools like text messaging. Ambassadors are the ones that really stick out because they provide your newsroom with unique skills, backgrounds, insights and crucially networks. The US is home to some radical new approaches to community listening. Outlier in Detroit uses that two-way texting relationship to take and respond to questions from its audience. Signal in Ohio runs a program that trains and pays local citizens to report from public meetings. They're of course at an advantage as startups, because they're not shackled by traditional notions of how journalism should be done. Longer serving local titles can expect, understandably, some internal resistance. Leadership is the key to overcoming this. Either way, these really start to tackle some of those pain points we heard about in the survey results. There's an especially interesting one worth digging into, that people want to know about decisions before they're made, and they want decision makers to be accountable for outcomes. It speaks to an enduring appetite for accountability reporting, but people just want better follow-through. Here's how you can deliver on that.
1: And what they point out, though, is that with the decline of the newsrooms in their local markets, they're not seeing as much follow-up anymore. Mm. Um, Also, with the lack of enterprise reporting, they're they're often finding out about things when it's too late to do anything about them. It was really surprising in a good way to me that people recognised that that was a value that journalism added for their communities before that that is harder and harder now but what's also interesting is they say that sometimes things are reported on like there's a big expose about you know lead poisoning but then it doesn't get to all the people that it needs to get to and then also once the news cycle has passed it's sort of forgotten and um what people really want is for journalists to be you know advocates in the sense of like you know okay you've you've identified this problem. Don't stop reporting on it until it's actually resolved, you know, yeah, Um, and and the value of that.
0: Is there a tech solution though? you know, uh, in terms of tracking the stories you're writing, tracking the outcomes, seeing where they go? Is there a good tech solution to this? Because, you know, we're all really busy. Sometimes it can just be an honest mistake of, you know, having to move on to the next thing. In terms of, like, keeping ourselves accountable, our journalists accountable, is there a tech solution that comes to mind?
1: I think there's actually a workflow solution to it. Um, that, that may be made easier with tech, but if you, it's sort of like, if you incentivize the newsroom to constantly be listening, that even if you move on, get busy, forget that something is a priority, if you are, if you have, uh, for example, as a beat reporter, if it's your job to at least every month or a couple times a month, go to office hours, listen to people, um, then if some story is still a big deal to someone and you've already stopped covering it, you, you're creating a mechanism for that person to always keep it at the top of your mind, if that makes sense. But that can only happen if you build in the mechanisms to do that, because if you're not, then you're sort of often in a, in a sort of bubble with your editor deciding what the priority is of, of the day, regardless of what people think about it. Um, so that's, that's one thing. And there's also, I think, a format solution to it. So I think as journalists, we are traditionally trained that, like, if something's worth a story or something's newsworthy, you've got to write at least a 500-word story on it or something. Um, People don't really need that, right? And it takes, like, hours of time to, like, whatever your process is, pitch the idea, go report it, write it, edit it, go through copy edits and things like that. People sometimes just need an answer to something. So I think that you know there are innovative formats like you can distribute something on instagram or as an as, as like a 100 word update on your website rather than devoting resources to a whole article or not doing anything at all
0: maybe just not to overthink it and make sure it's prioritized and
1: one one example um is like public safety so um people do want public safety news they what they don't like is like sensational Crime headlines that like don't follow up on anything. So it's like, great, someone was murdered, but nobody knows if the murderer was ever caught. And um, one, there was an interesting organization uh, that started a thing years ago. I think they were before their time, where they created a database of like criminal cases. Um, And the the concept was that no homicide is more or less important than the other. So rather than assigning stories based on what you think is most newsworthy as far as a person who was murdered. Um, you actually have all of the information available on a poll basis. So if someone's interested in like the updates from a case, they could look up that case and see what the facts are, the latest sort of statuses coming out from the police department. And in addition to that, the family members on their own time could upload photos and, and you know sort of um, create like a digital memorial for, for their loved one. And this was just a very different approach to the traditional way crime was reported. Um, that takes out the human error and bias of saying like, oh, well, like this person in this neighborhood should be on the front page versus this person in this neighborhood, you know, being buried in the inside.
0: Got it. What's uh, kind of step one to any of this? For a newsroom maybe listening in, they're maybe on ground zero with their listening strategy. They may want to try some different ideas, want to take a temperature check of their community. What would you suggest? Bringing your whole
1: team along with you is a critical part of this. If you are an existing organization, if it's something you want to commit to, don't do it as like a little secret project, you know, that you unveil to, to your newsroom later. I think involving stakeholders in the newsroom is really powerful because reporters are reporters, right? When they when they enter conversations with with anyone in a community listening process, you know, it sort of ignites that part of your brain that just makes you inherently interested in what a person has to say and care about the outcomes. So I think that doing a, a project like this, you know, starts with that aspect of leadership, bringing people along. And then I think designing your listening in a way that is, of course, manageable based on your capacity, but is maximally inclusive is really important. So I think that there are lots of little things we've learned along the way that can be barriers to entry for people. For example, um, using language that is really heavy on journalism jargon, talking about political issues, things that like make people think, oh, that's not for me, that's for like some person who is more involved
0: that's interesting that's very interesting like dropping the journalese and making it very much everyday language you know colloquial if, if you will as well to remove those what would you say um yeah barriers to entry and one reason in their head to say you know as you say that's not for me that's someone else's problem yeah that feels off limits to me perhaps another way of putting it
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if this is, if you find this in the UK as well, but in the US, I think the word media is so loaded now, um, that (laughs) does anyone
0: know what it means anymore? (laughs) Exactly. We, we
1: have to, I think that having some patience is really helpful because when you first approach a person to ask them about journalism or media, a lot of people will just instinctively be like, I hate the media. It's so polarizing. It's fake news, blah, blah, blah. And, um, I think that letting them get that out and then helping them understand that what you're asking about is information that's going to help them get through the week as opposed to the arguments they're seeing on TV about national, international, and ideological things that frankly don't really
0: touch their daily lives immediately. Mm -hmm.
1: And you can learn a lot if you can get the conversations to that
0: point. I love that suggestion, bringing it back to the individual, I suppose, and information they can actually do something with. Love that, Loretta. Finally, What's next for you? What's next with this project? So we will continue doing this research in more
1: markets. I think that the exciting thing that AJP sees is a lot of momentum and interest from people wanting to rebuild and and evolve local news in in their communities. The the sort of um, hope here is that this will continue accelerating as we've seen. We'll see more newsrooms that are grounded in this community listening work and continuing it. Um, And maybe the future of the industry is that every newsroom will be doing some version of this listening.
0: Awesome. Well, keep us posted, won't you? Um, Because it's uh, tremendously interesting work and I wish you all the best with it. And um, on that note, Loretta, thanks ever so much for coming on the show. It's been a real blast to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you. I learned a lot from this episode. My takeaway, though, is that communities and people within communities cannot be treated homogeneously. Loretta provided some great insights into common pet peeves that people have with local news reporting, but yours might be different. To find out, use those three strategies to encourage feedback ambassadors, topic specific invites, and tools like texting. Use that information wisely, as not acting on it can be detrimental. Fold those insights into your reporting and go back to respondents to show them that they've been heard. I'd love to get your thoughts on today's episode. Find me on Twitter, or I suppose I should say, find me on x at jpgjournalism, or email me on jacob at journalism.co.uk. You can check out all of our episodes on all your usual podcast platforms, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Just search and subscribe to the journalism.co.uk podcast. But that's all we have time for this week. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.